Hi, I'm Pastor Elise. And I'm Pastor Mary. Welcome to You're on Mute. Hello, everybody, and welcome to You're on Mute with Pastor Elise and Pastor Mary. Hi, Mom. How's it going? Uh, It's going great. Time for the end of the summer. I'm sorry that we haven't um, had much podcasting going on, but we've had a lot of other stuff going on. So. We have a lot of other stuff going on. And, you know, if you didn't point out that we haven't put out episodes very often, people might not care. Even notice that? Even notice. Um, but no, yeah, we have had a lot going on, um, both of us. You've traveled a bunch. and I have. Um I've been in survival mode at my place and doing right. Thing. Um, and uh, yeah, but one one fun thing we got to do is we got to go to the rostered ministers gathering together in Phoenix. We did, and in that July. was <laughs> the middle of July, and it was uh-huh. what 119 degrees every day, every day. Right. Yep. But like we are fire. It was. Day. We would have to suck in cool air before we even open the door mm-hmm. to our little hotel space. Ooh, man. That yeah, was something it else. Was, it was like when you open the oven to put the cookies in. Except you went into it. Except you walk into the oven. Yes. Right. Exactly. And I could not believe that people actually live there regularly <laughs> in those conditions. I got home when I landed in Chattanooga and Adam picked me up at the airport. When we walked out of the airport to get to the car, I never thought that 88 degrees with severe humidity would feel refreshing. But it but did. I, but I was like, oh man, it feels really nice here. I know. Adam looked at me like I had three heads. He was like, what are you talking about? It's disgusting. Let's get to the car and turn the air. (laughs) And you were like, ooh, I think I need a sweater. I was like, oh, my. Clutch my pearls. It's so (laughs) cool out here for late July, my goodness. Well, and I I felt like if one more person in the South said to me about the Phoenix weather. It's dry heat. At least it's a dry heat. And then you uh, and I would say, yeah, like an oven is dry like heat. A, yeah, like a convection oven. Exactly. I mean, it well, was miserable, but 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 um, we had a we had a good time there. We heard um some good speakers, went to some good mm-hmm. workshops, and the person that we are going to be talking to today um is the product of one of our encounters. Yeah. Um, at that rostered ministers gathering in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were so, Elise and I were so excited uh, to make the acquaintance of Pastor Carla Christopher, who um, serves mostly, although she serves in many, many different ways, as many you will hear her ways. say. My but uh, top of the resume is she serves as assistant to the bishop in charge of justice ministries for two synods. Lower Susquehanna, which is in Pennsylvania, and for the Delaware, Maryland Senate as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're happy about that. But the reason we wanted to have conversation with her, and actually she wanted to have conversation with us, 
is because she is uh, a co-chair of the brand new commission for a renewed Lutheran church in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And this is uh, this is a commission that the ELCA just recently put together. Um, this team just had their first meeting in July and are moving forward quickly. And you'll hear her talk about that. And they are charged with um, preparing a report and recommendations for the 2025 ELCA Churchwide Assembly in guess where, Elise? Phoenix. Right. In the summer. Woo! <laughs> Yay. So, so Elise, we have to go. Uh, Don't we? Do, do we? <laughs> I mean, no, we do have to go to read, to read the report and we're experienced now. We, we are. We know we how to know Phoenix what, now. We know how to Phoenix now. We know how to survive like a little desert lizard. <laughs> running from shady spot to shady spot <laughs> and you and you did that coming back from the grocery store my god running out to get groceries and you, for you was the adventure of a lifetime <laughs> and i didn't think i would survive and one of my favorite memories is when i i got back into the our little hotel airbnb thing um close to death uh <laughs> completely parched dried out like an old raisin exhausted and you waking up from your nap in the air-conditioned room said to me oh man got a lot of got a little warm in here while you were gone <laughs> and I wasn't thought, it just the right thing to say I thought I was going to murder you but yeah you weren't happy you with so me much love you so much but um, I did but I did appreciate the groceries though yeah, I know. No problem. Um, but no, we did have a great time in Phoenix. Um, we certainly approached it differently. Um, for those of you who have met my dear mother, you know that she can be a little on the introverted side and a little bit shy. But let me tell you something. Put this lady in a conference center full of other pastors and she becomes not a social butterfly, but a little social bunny rabbit. I mean, she is got her little backpack on and she is hopping from person to person. Hey, you, hey, you. And it's seminary people and it's people she worked with in Chicago or in the Carolinas or people for this. And it's just like, hey, hey, hey. I mean, it was a, a side of my mother that I have is was very rare for me to see, but she was in her element people i was but also because you made a contest out of the whole thing <laughs> I did. saying let's keep track of who knows the most people that's right thinking and that we would that it would all happen naturally but you went on the hunt i did did the competitive side of pastor mary came out hard it did it and did she fell two people short I, I did not. You did. I I still have it on my phone. I could pull it up. Yeah. I see, knew... I don't think you put down everybody. Uh, well, I think you're just a sore <laughs> loser. Because... Well, and, and you now know <laughs> a lot of people because, you know, you have a whole generation of pastors that yeah. uh, and deacons that I don't know. And I was pretty surprised, actually, at how many folks from like my generation of pastor. So, mm -hmm. you know, a couple years 
older than me and some well more than that maybe five years older than me in seminary and a couple of years behind um actually showed up i mean this mm-hmm. you know it was far out into the west um it was expensive to get to expensive to stay there for the whole mm-hmm. week um and yet i was uh i was really pleasantly surprised at how many but wouldn't you wouldn't you say that that the baby boomers didn't show very much no they didn't i think um a lot of Gen X pastors, lots mm-hmm. of millennial pastors, and then um, Gen, Z, you know, uh, Gen Z as well. Yeah, just kind of, you know, um, yeah, the boomers were in short supply, which is why you lost the competition. We All did right, have well, a lot I'll, of overlap, though. We did have a lot. We of had a lot of overlap. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, you know, you know, so so we'll we'll call it we'll call it. All right. Square. All fair and square. But um, but so, you know, mom, you, you did a great job of making sure you got to um, different uh, uh, workshops and things. You led a workshop. I led so, a workshop. Um, we also got to steal Caroline Lewis away for an afternoon, got to have lunch with her. We did. Casual, casual name drop. We're we're. We're, uh, we're cool with Caroline Lewis now, so. That's right. Everybody, everybody can be jealous about that. Yes, we have um, shared contact information. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, she was, we were on the Israel-Palestine trip, if you all yeah. will remember from, you know, a podcast a while back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but one of the, one of the really big um, uh workshops or uh what was it called it wasn't called a workshop it was called oh those groups Um, a caucus a caucus oh a caucus group yeah yeah one of the caucuses that was planned which was kind of like the buzz around the conference Mm -hmm. that a lot of people wanted to go to and did show up for i think um was a conversation about the commission for a renewed lutheran church um which you just talked about and um i actually had no idea that it was happening because I'm one of those people that doesn't you're not, you're not tracking always I don't always track I don't always read uh th- through the entire email or newsletter from my synod much to your dismay um <laughs> and um and so I actually had zero idea that this was happening I remember vaguely a while back you mentioning that you had applied for it but um even then I was like okay I don't know what that is but that's fine. So I definitely wanted to go to the caucus and I learned a lot about kind of what it is, what it's supposed to do. Um, I was excited to go home, come home and tell my congregation about it. Um, a few of them were like, wait, are we splitting? Is there no, like something happening? Is the ELC- Everything feels like a split now. Yeah. Is the ELCA not going to be the ELCA anymore? And it was like, no, we're just look we're we're popping the hood we're we're seeing, seeing <laughs> it's oil change it's just an oil it's, change it's, it's oil change time people we're seeing what's working what's not working what we can right. shift around you know um and we talk a mile check that. exactly mm-hmm. we talk a lot about that with with carla about kind of just how everything is changing so fast and so constant consistently and it's like mm-hmm. you know the church is kind of always playing catch up but um so 
Pastor Carla obviously was there and um, was leading that conversation with a couple other people. And one of the questions asked that was kind of batted around was, well, how do we spread the word about kind of what we're doing and, and what this caucus is or what the commission is, the CRLC, um, and what we're doing and who should we be talking to and, and this and that. And so um I raised my hand for like the 80,000th time. I think, I think Carla was like, my God, that woman in the back will not stop raising her. Who hand. is but she? God love her. She called on me a few times. Um, <laughs> and I finally said, you know, a great way to spread the word is podcast. There's at least five podcasts I can count um, that are hosted by ELCA pastors that kind of focus on church life or are faith-based. Um, I know people have podcasts for everything and anything now, but, um, you know, mm -hmm. the ELCA itself used to have a podcast. I think it was called the three sides or something like that. Yeah, I think um, so. I think they did a few, they did a few episodes and it kind of disappeared, but, um, and, and it was just kind of one of those like aha moments. And so I, um, as the kids say, I shot my shot. And after the caucus broke up, I, I went and introduced myself um, to Carla and got her card. And, um, you know, I kind of thought I was like, you know, well, my, my mom and I have a podcast if you want to come on it. And, um, you know, everyone and their mom has a podcast, it seems like. So I, I wasn't expecting her to, to, mm -hmm. to be, right. To, to be grab on, to grab onto it. But again, God love her. She did. And she was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so cool. Um, I'd love to be on it. Shoot me an email. Let's set it up. Um, and so a few weeks later, I finally did that after having email Carla on my to-do list for three weeks, at least. <laughs> um, and we were able to set up a time and she very graciously gave us about almost an hour and a half of her time. Um, but it was a really just incredible interview. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's a, worth the listen all the way to the end. It is worth the listen. Um it really is, uh, you know, I don't always go back and listen to our episodes after I edit them because you listen to the same parts a lot of times in, when in you're editing. But I have a feeling I'm going to go back to this one. Um, uh, her story is incredible and what she has managed to accomplish in not just her work in ministry, but her work in um, psychology and social work and community organizing and justice. I mean, my goodness, you know, just an incredible, incredible resume, um, incredible person, and just a really beautiful faith that shines through um, the entire time we're talking to her. So Absolutely. we, uh, we hope you all enjoy our conversation with Pastor Carla Christopher. Enjoy very much and um, listen up. It's a good one. But yeah, we'd love if um, we just started out with you kind of introducing yourself. And I'm sure you'd have like a elevator spiel of who you are and what you do. And um, I mean, you, you're, uh, you're a poet, you're an activist, you're a pastor, <laughs> you're working for two synods, you've got a YouTube channel. I mean, come on. I know. So let's and hear you, about it. And you love <laughs> Jesus. 
And you love Jesus. I know. Not <laughs> well, just Annalise, on the commission, but the co-chair of the commission. I know. Well, how did that happen? I want to hear about that part. But yeah. um, and then I think we also probably should introduce ourselves to you a little bit too to, to tell you where we're coming from. Mom, why don't you kick okay. us off? All right. So um Carla, my name's Mary Anderson, and um I've been a pastor for 41 years. And I know, hard so to believe. So freaking it. cool! That is so freaking cool, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> and living yeah. to tell about it. Really? <laughs> yeah. exactly. So mostly, mostly I've been in parish ministry um, in either the Metro Chicago Synod or South Carolina, which is where I'm from. So I'm back home now in Columbia and have been since 2003. Um, I was for a brief period of time on um, the ELCA staff when the ELCA started. I mean, I was there for the ribbon cutting um, at 8765. <laughs> <laughs> I know. In, uh, well, I think it was January 2nd of, uh, of 1988. And um, one of the things that's interesting to me about the work that we're doing now through the commission is, of course, you know, my earlier years were all about the um, commission for a new Lutheran church as those three bodies came together, <clears throat> a very different uh, group of people, I must say, than what you have now. <laughs> <laughs> very different group. But an interesting thing to know about me is that, um, and I wasn't alone in this, but I was kind of a victim, if you will, of some of that commission's mistakes. Um, part of it being that, um, and of course, hindsight is 2020. I'm not sure they could have seen the decline in the church or could have anticipated what it would be like. Um, because a lot of us in the 80s didn't, you know, we kind of knew stuff was going on that church felt different than it used to, but everybody thought if we just worked harder and harder and created better and better programs, then it would all be fine. Um, and if we could just find the youth and the young families. <laughs> no, exactly. That was the magic bullet. <laughs> but so. what happened was I was, I was called to serve in the commission for women, which no longer exists. Um, and I had a particular, you know, job that I was called from to do. Um, but and so we started in January by November of that same first year, there were major staff cuts because they had so overbuilt the budget. And um, so I was in that first round and I remember Bishop Chilstrom, you know, calling us all together on the 11th floor and talking about how we needed to do this and how kind of the tree needed to be pruned, you know, so that the rest of it could live. Mm. And, you know, which wow. sounds pretty cool, except when you're the one pruned, and then it's a whole different thing. I'll say the fact that you remember that analogy 30 some odd years later means it was not a good one. <laughs> right, not a good memory. But then, you know, I had moved my whole family to Chicago. We had no connections there whatsoever. So eight months into the job and I'm earning, you know, the the main uh, salary for our family, I'm out. And I 
went to the personnel office and I said, this building is the only thing I know in Chicago. I will take whatever job you have. And so then I went and worked as a secretary in the division for outreach um, until I got um, a call in Evanston, Illinois. You know, so that when that took longer uh, than I thought it would. But that was just very, you know, very interesting time. And um, and then uh, there was and then in that midst, there was um, a second round of budget cuts as well. So, you know, that was um, kind of interesting to watch. I certainly wasn't in on any kind of inner circle. Uh, you know, just kind of read the stuff in the Lutheran like everybody else, um, you know, about what was going on. But it was it was very interesting to feel sort of victimized by some of those mistakes that I don't blame anybody for. But um, I think it's just interesting when we try to see a vision for the future, um, we're not always spot on. You know, we don't always just can't have all the information that we need. So. Listen, I don't mean it to sound like a bummer because I'm really excited about what you're doing, but it was it was interesting back then. But anyway, yeah. so I'm doing interim ministry now in the South Carolina Senate, and I'm in my fifth interim place, and um, I'm doing a really good job on that, I think. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm glad about that. Every place you interim wants to call you, so I'd say Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> That's the hard part. I know yeah. it is the hard part, but anyway, sorry to take so long on that, but I just, I just stuff I wanted to share with you. No, I was, I was really intrigued because the, the little bit of research I did, cause I was like, well, I'd love to find something more, you know, besides the podcast and, you know, you, I didn't realize that you were a writer and mm-hmm. had done so much writing and, you know, so especially like the, the work around unhoused people and, and mm-hmm. racial justice. And I was looking for that, but there was something and it was like on some obscure website, but when you were talking about like the decline in the church and you were like, I don't really like to use the negative language of decline in the church. It's about the changing demographic. That that's what I, that's what I say too. I talk about it as we're, we're transforming. It's a reformation time. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a really helpful context for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the reorganization that we were all like, I have no idea what this means. Like, what do you mean you're reorganizing? No. Are you shifting departments around? Are you? Oh, we've like, been are doing we that. The way that we do <laughs> things because, yeah. like, why are we keep calling it the reorganization? Like, it's this big thing. Yeah. Or the or the names of the different units and departments at the ELCA. I gave up on that about fifteen years ago. Yeah, I, I'm just like, tell me the name of the person I need to email. But it was, right. you know, the people that in the statistics that as an LGBTQ person, as a black person, like this was one of the departments I leaned really heavily on. I'm like, how do you get rid of data collection? Like how can you make informed decisions when you slash the department that keeps data that allows us to look back objectively as opposed to anecdotally on history? Like, but it was just so many people. And and I think Mm -hmm. that's the the part that so often gets lost, like it's names, it's faces, it's stories, it's the blood, sweat and tears of seminary. It is years of service and navigation of complex systems. And, 
you know, but it, it was people, it was real people. And the fact that we couched it in such pretty language mm-hmm. meant that folks were not able to be prepared. They weren't able to prepare soft landing places. And I mm-hmm. don't want to contribute to anything like that. Right. So knowing about how some of the transition, the big transition times have been handled in our church historically, it's a big motivation for why I wanted to be part of it this time. Like I know that we're at a cliffhanger moment right, right. in the movie of church of the ELCA mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we've done so much harm in making yeah. decisions out of a mentality of scarcity mm-hmm. and a focus on power preservation and shift instead of um, authentic gospel and evangelism. And I can't be a part of it, but if I just refuse to be a part of it when I have not resigned my ordination, that's right. And that makes me complicit. So I, I wrestled, mm-hmm. I mean, I wrestle still, I wrestle yeah. still. I believe it. So yeah, I'll probably be back to you at some point. Be like, okay, oh, that would be so awesome. With you because I really oh, yeah. need to to yeah. get more. one of the the groups that we said we really wanted to talk to were people that had memory of and experience with how the the commission for the new Lutheran Church played out because mm-hmm. there is a loose model after that that we're using for this renewed Lutheran Church. So we've been doing deep study of all these writings and. Mm-hmm. anecdotes of the new lutheran church commission and uh it's some heavy stuff because okay. it, it is obvious there's stuff that we got really wrong oh, yeah and the stories are just so many so many in there well how about if we let elise introduce herself and yes, then we'll, yes, then we'll yes, go yes. to you and that'd be great yeah um well my story is not as um uh uh, dramatic or long or interesting. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so, um, I have only been ordained for, uh, four years in December, um, four years that have felt like 40. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, I started at my call January of 2020. And so, (laughs) uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I know enough said, (laughs) enough said, oh yeah. When I say that to people, they just kind of give me one of those knowing nods Mm -hmm. like, ah, yes, yes. When the world ended, got it. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, the majority of my call has been consumed by pandemic ministry and the rebound or lack thereof of the church after it. And so um, it's been it's been interesting uh, to say the least. But um, before I was in ministry, I was a athletic trainer, a certified athletic trainer. I did um, sports medicine for athletic teams. And I taught high school for a stint, which I have so much respect for lifelong educators. That job is no (laughs) joke. Um, Even the toughest day of being a pastor, I'm like, well, at least I'm not in charge of 52 freshmen. (laughs) Like, woohoo. Yeah. So, but, you know, um, I grew up in Chicago. Um, I was probably in a snowsuit in a stroller when the ribbons were cut at the ELCA. Yeah. She was like 14 (laughs) months old. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) So I'm the baby of the group. Um, And, uh, and yeah, so uh, growing up in Chicago was really cool. Having two pastors as parents was really um, 
formational. I mean, I, I remember as a kid, people were like, you're going to be a pastor. Like, thank you for that. Yeah. (laughs) Formative. That's totally, absolutely stealing that. Yeah. Like, how was that for you? It was formative. Formative. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it was funny because everyone, you know, I was the, um, angelic pastor's kid. So I was like front pew, um, acolyte every Sunday, uh, the main character in the Christmas pageant every year. I mean, I was all over it. And, um, uh, so when my mom actually left her call in Evanston, um, I was 16, Mm -hmm. I want to say halfway through high school. You were a sophomore. Yeah. And so she left and that church, um, it wasn't everyone, but, uh, they were rocked with her departure. I think we could, that's one thing I'll say is we could do a lot better as a church with how pastors say goodbye. I think it's, it needs to be far more transparent and, (laughs) and not so sneaky. I think it does a lot of damage when you're just kind of like, Hey, great relationship for the last 12 years, but I'm going to leave you and go hook up with somebody else. (laughs) It's just kind of like, okay, great. Um, but so, uh, I kept trying to go back to that church and, um, Mm. never quite felt the same. You know, it was like, uh, it went from feeling like home to people kind of saying, you know, well, thanks for visiting this week. Well, because we, um, she and her dad stayed in Chicago because he was in a call, We didn't want to take her out of high school her last two years and bring yeah. her to, I'm sorry, but South Carolina. So yeah. <laughs> good choice. Good choice. Like, and my, my mom was going down with Alzheimer's and, mm-hmm. you know, all of that kind yeah. of stuff. So. Yeah. So mom kind of blazed the path back to South Carolina and dad and I followed two years later. But, um, you know, I, I realized that there that, you know, I kind of lost my identity. I was like the pastor's kid. And then I was kind of nothing. Um, could I have gone to my dad's church? Yeah. But, um, mom's place at that time just felt more like home. And so Mm -hmm. I really struggled with my relationship with the institutional church for about six years after that. It wasn't until I did the young adults and global mission program. Um, and I served in South Africa for a year, which was amazing. Um, but that, one of the things that I noticed about being a young person in the church was you don't have to be a pastor's kid to be deeply involved. And so, you know, there were other volunteers who had been, you know, the president of their campus ministry or, you know, were invited to preach at their home church before they left for the year and, you know, were the young adult on council and all these different things. And I was just like, oh. I can, I can be like a, there is a like place a, for me. There is a place for me without having, you know, without having the, the pastor as your parent. And so, and then once I walked through that door, it just kind of eventually led to seminary, um, which I never saw coming. Maybe I should have, I don't know. Um, but went back to Chicago for seminary at LSTC and then Oregon for my internship. And now I've landed in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, where mm-hmm. I served as the associate for three years and then the senior pastor left. So I have been the interim current and candidate solo pastor <laughs> for eight and a half months. <laughs> it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre and very weird. And, um, and at times very hurtful. 
and at times <laughs> very hurtful. I mean, talk about like, you know, change, not death. I mean, I've got, <laughs> I've got very involved folks at, at my congregation who I think look around and just don't recognize the church that they've been a part of for 40 years for better or worse. Um, I mean, for a lot of them, just seeing a woman in her thirties lead the church is just too weird. Like they can't wrap their minds around it. And then others who kind of see the kind of ministries we're doing and they're just like, I don't, that's not what we used to do. Or, you know, a lot of their friends have either passed away or joined other churches and, you know, and then that panic becomes um, like a death grip on, on old ways of doing things. And then it just kind of, I always say, it's like, you can love your church too much. It's like a, a toddler with a kitten. That's the way we describe it now. Yeah. I toddler just love with it so much and before you know it. It's like, it's like the parents are like gentle, gentle, gentle. But yeah. anyway, mm. so that's, and, that's, and Elise is also very involved in um, homelessness ministry. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of work. Um, I actually worked for the city of Chattanooga for about a year as a homeless outreach specialist. Um, and then that kind of uh, shot me out of a cannon in terms of advocacy mm-hmm. for the unhoused. And um, so I, you know, started groups and I help with nonprofits and I, you know, just kind of try to engage the faith community as much as I can because you know, where the government can't quite go or takes too long to go, the church can really fill those gaps in if if we kind of let go of some of that fear of the unknown. And so I push for that a lot and just kind of do as much outreach as I can for, for that community. So, yeah. And so, so Carla, um, why don't you tell us your story, um, your ministry story, and then we can move on to talking about the commission and and other things as well. Part of what Elise and I do in this podcast is um, uh, talk about how, here here I go with my little jingle, but talk about how different generations are differently wise. And um, so we look at, so I'm representing baby boomers and she's representing millennials. And we're talking about um, what ministry is like from our different perspectives. Yeah. Although, you know, in terms of diversity, we ain't got much other than other than our ages. <laughs> it's truly it's truly Lutheran. It's truly Lutheran. Um, <laughs> not a lot of diversity. As no. I was, we were actually talking about before you came on um, when we were both looking at who makes up the commission. I was like, I wish the ELCA was as diverse as this commission is. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, and I think in a lot of ways it is, but it's like so drowned out by this like sea of white Nordic people. That's yeah. just kind of. <laughs> but the commission is very, <laughs> is very concentrated with our diversity. I know. So, I know. so that's good. Really? I looked over yeah. all of that too. And I was like, I was just really impressed, Carla, at, you know, who all was, was on there. Too. Yeah. So I tell us grateful. a little bit about yourself. <laughs> so just because I still am getting used to saying it, um, I'm the Reverend Carla Christopher. Woo-hoo. And ministry has moved so fast for me, but I keep returning to that phrase for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. 
I am a second career pastor and a proud Gen Xer right in the middle of my two lovely hosts. There you go. (laughs) I actually grew up the child of a missionary and a Southern evangelical woman of faith who was Jewish when I was born, converted because of the wonderful Episcopalian women who helped support her when that whole having a Black child in the 70s was not as warmly embraced by the community as one would hope. And so after years of Episcopal church ladies having me over on their orange plaid couches watching (laughs) Rockford Files and Murder, She Wrote reruns, the church became the family that I didn't have. It became the safe space that I didn't have access to. And it also became a place where I could lead. It became a place where I could have voice and feel useful, like I was truly able to contribute. And as an interracial person, um, there was a lot about being in black community and black spaces that wasn't always home for me. I didn't live in the same neighborhood. My father was not around after I was four or five years old. And so I didn't have contact with a lot of the relatives who would have helped me come up in Black culture. But I still remember being five years old, the day I really understood what being Black meant, not just in skin color, not just in culture, and that I had different baby dolls and different books, but a little girl came up to me at school and she rubbed my arm to see if the color came off. And my friend, right, my school buddy, we shared a desk, came up and she wanted to defend me. She wanted to care for me. And so she said, well, it doesn't come off. She's just suntan. Mm-hmm. Her way of defending me mm-hmm. was still proving that I wasn't Black because that equated with something being wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And so she was justifying that I still had mm-hmm. the right to be in this white school space, even though I had all the tightly coiled curls and the dark mocha latte skin. (laughs) And um, I felt lost in the middle for a lot of years. And also as a person who was born Jewish and then our family became Christian and I was old enough that I was already uh, saying not quite cuss words yet, but questionable phrases in Yiddish. (laughs) And now I'm attending, uh, you know, these liturgy heavy services and then when we moved to the mountains and and my mom worked in a missionary office it was all about ministry with other people who felt like they were on the outside or people who didn't fit in to a traditional congregation but wanted to serve God and found creative contexts to do that being in real relationships with folks and that formed me deeply Right up until I went to college, I studied psychology um, in New York City. I went to Columbia and I was passionate about how the human mind worked and research, developmental psychology and education. And while I was 
at Columbia, I joined a student group that taught all about um, faith in an independent life and helped young adults transition to a personal relationship with Jesus. And so when I told my trusted Bible study leader that I was pretty sure I might be gay based on how I felt about my judo sensei, I was sent <laughs> to a center for a prayer retreat that could help me with my discernment. Oh boy. And when I escaped that center in the middle of nowhere, in the, the dead of winter. And this was back when there were still pay phones, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. So after a very dramatic movie-esque moment of going out the window and hitchhiking up the road and getting to a diner and calling my uncle in Michigan on the pay phone, that man drove through two states to pick me up on New Year's Eve in a snowstorm and took me mm. home. Amazing. And I was outside of the church for 10 years mm -hmm. as I recovered from the aftermath of that experience. And I did not think that I would return, even though the church and its music and its prayer and its dance and movement and its community and its service spoke to my whole soul. I thought that I was outside of that hope for love and community and unconditional acceptance forever until I moved to Baltimore, now uh, a caseworker and a community educator who did a lot of activism and outreach with different marginalized communities, worked as a community organizer for an environmental organization, um, did year-long fellowships working with different school systems, um, working with at-risk youth, um, worked with agencies like the YWCA, um, supporting offenders in recovery uh, from domestic violence, working with youth and children who were survivors of abuse or trauma. Um, and as I was doing that work, I discovered this thing called inclusive or open and affirming churches. Wow. And it was like the sky parted, the dove flew out, the rainbow <laughs> mm -hmm. exploded everywhere. And yeah. as soon as I was able to walk across a church's threshold without a panic attack, I wanted it all day, every day. I was yeah. hungry. I was starving. It was manna and water in a desert of endless, hopeless, hot sand and travel. And so I was singing in the choir. I was supporting with the campouts. I mean, I would clean the floors of the church, mm -hmm. scrub bathrooms with such joy at just being allowed to be there. Mm -hmm. So it never occurred to me that there was a place for leadership. Yeah, um, I was just grateful to be allowed in. I'd never experienced a woman pastor. I'd never experienced an LGBTQ pastor. I'd never experienced... Um, an interracial pastor or one that didn't have a lifelong Christian background um, in that denomination. So when I moved to York, Pennsylvania to become a foster parent to my niece, it was not wow. in the plans. It was just too hard to move her down to Baltimore with the legal system. Mm -hmm. And I was coming to get my girl. So I found an apartment on Craigslist, moved to York, Pennsylvania 
and was doing some consulting work with some of the open and affirming churches and an ELCA church that was doing wonderful work in the city wanted to know if I would come and work for them doing some diversity, equity, and inclusion support. And I said, well, I can't because I go to church every Sunday. Mm. I said, well, what if you went to church here? Mm. I said, well, I'm going to become a deacon or a licensed minister. I'm working on finding ways to really be an active part of ministry. Well, what about just becoming a pastor? And when I tell you the world stopped, you know, everything went in <laughs> slow motion. I bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this pastor took me to meet the bishop at that time of Lower Susquehanna Synod, Central Pennsylvania region, where I still serve. And that bishop. Who was God that? Bless him forever. James Dunlop. Sat oh, with we're still me there. For yeah. more than two hours that day, wow. never had met me before and said, tell me your story. Mm. And as I was speaking, he brought in another man that I had not met before and said, I just love to have a friend sit with us because I think your story is powerful. And, and I would love for him to hear it if you don't mind. And at this point I'm crying, I'm telling all about the, mm -hmm. the hurts and harms and the healings and joys of church life. And it turns out that the man that Bishop Dunlop brought in was the assistant to the bishop in charge of candidacy. Wow. So I had my candidacy pre-screening without having a clue what candidacy was. Mm -hmm. Within a year, I was one of the first co-op students at the Gettysburg campus of what is now United Lutheran Seminary. So the congregation that wanted to work with me that I felt very drawn to, I spent three years working with them while also attending seminary almost full time and was able to do the two together, which meant that I graduated within three years and was able to start my first call as a trained and certified, formerly known as redeveloper, now co vital congregation specialist and I began my first call in February of 2020. Ooh. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. So, of course. You can relate. Later, right. Oh, yeah. I can relate to Elise because six yeah. weeks later, the world shut down. Mm -hmm. And that was when being a Gen X pastor suddenly became the miracle that this wonderful congregation in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania needed. Mm. Because we had a lot of individuals who were deeply loving and caring and about community, about being together, meal preparation, parties and celebrations, gatherings, a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. And not one time had a service ever been filmed in that congregation. Mm. Wow. There was no tech equipment. There was no supportive network for staying engaged because people in that congregation were from the community. And so as that transitional generation, I was experienced 
in web design, coming in from a community organizing background, you can't community organize without Zoom and conference calls and YouTube videos and mailers and Mm -hmm. all the different methods of accessibility. And then also I understood what it was like to be in face-to-face community as something that was deeply life-giving. And so I became for two years, instead of their revitalization specialist for children and youth ministry and community engagement, I became digital ministry, pastoral Mm -hmm. care, um, family support, and helped us set up our first YouTube channel and social media presence. And we learned how to edit videos and we started our first podcast Mm-hmm. where we would engage around um, topics of faith and Bible study instead of being able to have Sunday school and faith formation. And I realized, my God, I love this work. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful to be able to use the gifts from my first career, yeah, from my life before the church, instead of it having been wasted time, it was such a spiritual reminder that God works through everything. God doesn't cause a struggle, but I like to describe God as the proverbial GPS of heaven, right? Whatever turn you make, recalibrating, and boom, the (laughs) new route arrives to get you there. That's right, rerouting. Right? So I rerouted And it turned out it was exactly what the church needed. My Mm -hmm. first career, Carla, the person who couldn't go into a church without a panic attack, Carla, the person who didn't want anything to do with working in a church, became Carla, the person who used the skills gained in that life to help a church keep its doors open when it desperately needed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a real for such a time as this story. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Life really support, is. life support pastor, the pastor, forget vitality. It was a life support. <laughs> well, that wow, was that's amazing. That was a lot of what I think has shaped the work I've done in the church since then. Um, mm-hmm. Because as a community organizer and then eventually a community educator and a trainer, in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or cultural competency. I worked with school districts, libraries, nonprofits, corporations, congregations, and denominational bodies. Mm -hmm. And I brought messages of diversity, equity, and inclusion into staff trainings and into school classrooms. And it turned out there was a shortage of queer black women pastors with digital competency in the ELCA (laughs) in Amish country, Pennsylvania. I know, and you check so many boxes. (laughs) First person narratives are important to uplift. So I can do a lot of trainings without having to call everybody else in, which means I get the Mm -hmm. chance to see people multiple times and build relationship. Mm -hmm. And what became working with one or two congregations, working on the synods task force became where I am now. I serve currently as the assistant to the bishop for justice ministries for Lower Susquehanna Synod and Delaware, Maryland Synod. 
I'm also the primary curriculum developer and trainer for the ELCA Region 8. Mm -hmm. I do the LGBTQIA 2S Plus cultural competency training, which is required for rostered leaders in Delaware, Maryland Synod. And I also do the racial justice trainings required for all rostered leaders throughout Region 8. And we have a lot of participants from all over the country because... Our offerings are hybrid, they're interactive, and they are faith-based and led by Mm -hmm. a pastor, which is different from bringing in a professional from the secular world who can do great justice work, but it's not always from a faith-based perspective. Mm -hmm. So being able to bring together the beginning of my career and working life with its fulfillment, which is now with the church, Mm -hmm. has allowed me to find an incredible niche that has let me work with synods, synod staffs and offices and seminaries across the country. And so my newest engagement and opportunity to serve was when my synod nominated me as a member, a prospective member for the commission for a renewed Lutheran church, because I represented a lot of demographics that mm-hmm. the ELCA has a desire to deepen relationship with. Right. And also because I had connections and trust in those communities. So when it becomes time to do listening sessions, to ask opinions and thoughts, this is a language that I speak. I'm a chaplain with Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries mm-hmm. um, and their program Proclaim, which serves LGBTQIA 2S plus rostered leaders, seminarians, So these are not just survey links being sent by a stranger. This is Mm -hmm. your friend, your chaplain, Mm -hmm. your partner in ministry that is coming to you saying, I want to hear your voice. And apparently Churchwide felt that there was value in that because not only was I invited to serve on this commission, but then chosen as one of the co-chairs. That's amazing. And when I listen to your story, I think about how it does represent, um, I think, what we what we need and must have in rostered leaders moving forward. I mean, in, in my time, it was very typical to go straight from college to seminary and then immediately into a parish and just kind of stay there and, you know, move around a little bit. And some people stayed, you know, in their same synod, you know, the one that they, that they grew up in. And I certainly, that was my trajectory as well, except that I feel like um, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more, um, I don't know, not diverse. I'm not diverse, but I've, I understand the different communities um, more than I had before. I've been trying to train myself um, to do different things. Although I'm still pretty terrible at technology. I still, you know, I, you know, we've got our podcast. I write a blog. I do all this other stuff, you know, and, um, stuff I never would have thought of doing, you know, even 15 years ago. And, um, so trying to bring some wisdom and experience to that, but I think you're right on in terms of, you know, I mean, I started seminary in 1978, and so most of us were not second career anything. We were all super young, although I went to Philadelphia. 
um, now called United Lutheran. <laughs> and, but, and I was shocked actually, because I thought I would be the only woman in the class and about half my class were women. A number of them were second career, which also shocked me because coming from South Carolina, there were um, no women pastors yet. It took us until 1981 to ordain our first woman pastor um, who was an associate. And then the next was ordained the next year in 82. And then I was the third in 83. And but, <laughs> but the first to pastor to be the a solo pastor and, and a lead right. pastor of a congregation. Mm-hmm. Woohoo! Uh, big stuff, man. <laughs> no. So, I mean, when I, I mean, you know, I do feel like an old person when I say, <laughs> when I say things like, you know, the amount of change that's happened in society and in the church in my lifetime has been immense. And, you know, I've tried to participate at least uh, generally you know, in, in those changes, but seeing people who haven't, um, uh, I'll just throw this out that as I talk to not necessarily other pastors, but to lay people, um, cause I have friends that are friends and family, variety of congregations, um, not all Lutheran, but I hear them all saying the same thing, which is, or the same complaints about their pastors which is they're not creative and they don't have energy. <laughs> and it seems to have nothing to do with age. Not at all. Not at all. I would say they probably did when they started. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, one of the main <laughs> trainings that I do, that's actually the most requested one and what is now part of racial justice training, boundary training, mm-hmm. and LGBTQIA2S plus training that I do across the country is trauma-informed care, which yeah. I bring from my social work and community mm-hmm. educator background. And it's actually a great time to be talking about trauma-informed care in history because pretty much every American, if not every human on the globe now has a score on the trauma index. Yeah, I bet. We count as (laughs) being in active need of trauma-informed practices. So as we're training and talking with rostered leaders and with lay leaders about how to support congregations through the symptoms of chronic stress and trauma, which include disrupted sleep, short-term memory struggles, vocabulary struggles, um, Mm. forebrain processing, the struggle with multitasking, um, trouble with keeping schedules and being able to time manage or what we call executive function. Um, That all, when your body and brain are in survival mode, you're not able to access that front part of your brain that does all that multitasking and makes those complex leaps and holds those big words Mm -hmm. and remembers things that you've maybe only read once or twice because all the blood is going to the part of you that's running from the woolly mammoth. And that totally tunnel vision, 
it yeah. creates singular focus and it creates um, that flood of adrenaline, the muscle tightness, you're prepared to run, but really what you are is exhausted by that rapid and that muscle tension. And then you throw in the number of people that we have seen pass away, the number of mm-hmm. people that we have seen in job crisis, financial crisis, and being exposed to that over time changes your brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so few pastors that I encounter have been told or warned that this is a real thing, have been told that it causes long lasting change, have been told that there's not enough bubble baths in the world no. that are going to cancel out the amount of trauma that we absorb from others. But, and this is a, one of the hills I will die on. It absolutely is. That's a pencil, very Pennsylvanian expression, mm-hmm. but that separating church from state is not the same as separating church from culture. Right. The religion, the language we use, the way we communicate with people, the way that we reach individuals, where people are is part of their culture, how they learn, mm-hmm. what education they have access to, what's considered mannerly or offensive behavior. This is part of culture. So in ministry, we can separate from associating with a certain governmental party, but we can't separate from the issues of justice and oppression. We can't Mm -hmm. separate from the struggles in our community, and we can't separate from the realities that our people communicate and function in. And right now we are functioning in a time of such immense change that returning to my trauma-informed care reference, one of the biggest symptoms of chronic stress and trauma is decision fatigue that we have to learn so many new skills and Mm -hmm. we have to do so many adaptations to change that you actually lose the ability brain-wise to Mm -hmm. make decisions, to be creative. You are just surviving. And that's, that's all we can do. And we've never seen in our country, not to mention the church, this level of change When I think about the people that come to me and say, you know, why don't you do it like this? Why don't you do it like this? Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to have 20 more hours in the work week so that I could do those things. Mm -hmm. I would also love to have um, 20 more hours on the weekend so that I can decompress and relax and get into the mental and creative space to do that. Right. I would love if individuals lived in a totally different culture because I mean, how real is that? I mean, recognizing, um, you know, doc, that you came from a time when there were actually homes that you could buy with one person in the family working, working, right. And that childcare was accessible, that families lived in an area close enough to each other to be able to offer childcare support and transportation support. So this model of one pastor with a full altar guild and (laughs) wonderful ushers and people ready to set up social activities and participate in them, that's just not the reality. But that's when our seminaries were built, our curriculums, and that's where church expectations are still built on. Mm -hmm. I know as a Gen Xer, I struggle with 
the fact that I still remember that too, mm-hmm. but also know that that hasn't been my cultural experience. Yeah, it's and more so, of a distant memory. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I'm also, you know, I was the latchkey generation. So I'm like, all right, buckle up. Let's do this work. <laughs> we gonna figure it out. And I also care a lot less if people are upset. I'm like, oh, well, whatever. Burn it yeah. all down. We're just going to start again. <laughs> well, Carla, one of the ways that um, or one of the questions that I've been trying Wait, to. How te- did you how did you move on so quickly from that? That was a stand up and applaud. Moment. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My God, I have been so enthralled by this conversation. Like I'm like. I'm normally someone that even when we're recording, I'm like, okay, uh, I got to go to the grocery store. Or is that <laughs> me? Or, You're writing you know, your grocery my, list. My little my little ADD millennial brain is like all over the place. I have been so zoned in to this conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> like I am hearing what I need to hear. I am uh, just like. You're I, being I affirmed. Never, yeah, like I've I'm being affirmed for sure. Um, I've never felt like more of an underachiever in my life, but like I'm here <laughs> for it. Like I I'm <laughs> like I'm like this is like yes, this is so great. Um, you know, I it's so funny. We were talking about there's this article circulating on Facebook right now that was written by a PCUSA pastor. And it's called, you know, um, you've seen why it. I le- why yeah. I left the left church? church. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, I was, I was, you know, I, uh, I texted it to my family, and and I was catching my mom up on it, and I basically was like, you know, he's coming from a perspective of like a straight white guy, you know. So you kind of automatic, like for me, whenever I, I'm kind of like, okay, how good could this be, you know, kind of thing. But <laughs> he did. <laughs> He did like how much am I really going to relate to this? You know, right, um, right, right. That's what you really meant, <laughs> right? That's what we <laughs> yeah, meant to yeah, say. That's that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, but I will say, without sounding whiny, he puts this perspective of kind of pulling the curtain back on what pastors go through to do the work we're being asked to do. And you know, there's certain like we could we could pick it. I mean, I've seen like every every facebook status from every word he said is true to um here's where i disagree and it's like 20 paragraphs long um <laughs> like we we all probably fall at a different place on that spectrum but i will say what i what i appreciated that he said was it's not just a physically taxing job it's not just something that involves a higher degree and you know um all these other things because a lot of the, a lot of jobs involve those things but it also has this component of real emotional exhaustion that I don't even think as pastors we name because, and of course, there's also other professions that have the same thing. I mean, you know, social workers, school counselors, I mean, all those things. But he talked about how he had a colleague who was experiencing like severe burnout, like could barely get out of bed, all these kind of things. This guy finally goes to um a mental health professional and this professional says you have all of the symptoms of PTSD but it wasn't necessarily his trauma he was uh-huh. reacting to it was the trauma of the 300 members of his church and he absorbed it and so um you know i i'm really fascinated with trauma informed care especially working with you know, folks experiencing homelessness. I mean, trauma is the gateway drug 
to unhoused, you know, mm -hmm. an unhoused life. I mean, it's, you know, people blame so many things for why folks end up homeless, but um, that yellow brick road leads to trauma almost every single time. And so and that is it, why we need pastors like you. Just right. That out exactly. There. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. Um, <laughs> because that idea of yeah. trauma being such a gateway and the ministry being needed for that to truly empathize with mm -hmm. individuals who have lived through all this trauma, who have vicarious trauma to use the technical mm -hmm. term um, that's harder for people who grew up in a more monolithic environment mm -hmm. and so one of the big divides i see between the the digital generations and the generations that grew up not totally grounded in digital life mm -hmm. is that when i'm around 10, 12, 14 year olds, they are passionately concerned about creation care because they saw the YouTube video of the Peruvian farm that is now a desert because their waterway was rerouted so that mm -hmm. there could be more um, American avocado salad. And mm -hmm. they are absolutely aware of what's happening with Haitian refugees and Rwandan refugees with the visuals, the heart-wrenching, gut-striking mm -hmm. visuals. And they're talking to those individual people across countries and time zones. So it is real and it is affecting in a way that is totally different. And there's mm -hmm. also a completely different economic reality that now makes our younger people able to identify. They're like, I am very aware that as a 20 something, 30 something, having children is now a luxury. The dream mm -hmm. of ever owning a home is now a luxury. As a rostered leader in the church, I will probably need to be bivocational. And since plate giving as the sole funding source for the church is not returning in any of our lifetimes, Mm -hmm. um, then that becomes what does being bivocational look like? Mm -hmm. What does having to have a whole nother degree and career, but still need a master's degree with probably mega massive student loans for the half of the job that I'm going to be doing mm -hmm. and even less time and flexibility to unpack that trauma and my spouse or partners, close friends, support network are also working in the same way. So they don't have that availability so sometimes digital connecting is the only way that I have to get access to support. I mean, even in seminary, the learning that we did around self-care, around pastoral care for others, around the needs of the community. I got two, three beautiful emails this morning um, asking questions and following up on a sermon I gave on Sunday. I don't even know the names of those people because um, they are remote viewers who right. happen to find me through a Facebook share or a post and were moved by my words. But I have to figure out how to support them through an email with mm -hmm. no context, no information and following doing no harm as my call to action, seek to provide transformational spiritual support. 
There is no class in seminary that even began to address that, much less one that taught me the grant writing and the legalese I need to figure out how to create nonprofit theater troops or music mm -hmm. sp performance spaces in my congregation to figure out a way to keep this building open for community breakfast. Mm -hmm. We need the cultural knowledge of our young leaders if we're going to have the adaptive, responsive future that can keep up with the amount of change that means by the time we write a curriculum for 2023, the 2026 graduates are going to be saying, oh, I can't deal with this old fashioned stuff. I know. <laughs> That's what's so scary. That's it's, hard, it's hard to read any book bef written before 2019 in terms of it like really is like church I know. culture, all these kind of things. I mean, you know, m my mom has, has said a couple times the church used to try desperately to get back to the culture of the 50s and 60s where mm -hmm. everyone went to church on Sunday, 10% of your, you know, income went to the church. Now we're just dying to get back to 2019, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, we have to, you know, we have to kind of, um, you know, move on and, and kind of charge, charge forward. And I think a big um, battle a lot of pastors are facing, which we've faced for a long time, is pulling our people out of our buildings, like I, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, that's a battle I face at, at my church. I mean, I'm, I feel, uh, as a pastor, I'm not just called to this congregation of people. I'm called to the community in, right. which, in which the church sits. You're a chaplain um, to the community, a chaplain to the community. Yeah. And also how that's not seen as evangelism to a lot of church members is shocking to me. It's like, if your <laughs> pastor's in the paper, for the work that they're doing in the community, more people are going to be curious about what's going on at that church. But so many congregations see that as, well, if our pastor's out there doing that, who's taking care of us? Like what, That's been you know? one of the it's most bad. interesting things mm -hmm. about the work with the Commission for a Renewed Lutheran Church mm -hmm. is that one of the, the comments that people first make when looking at the commission is, wow, that's a really diverse group of people. Like I said, my first <laughs> yep. reaction. I, I know. I it, I'm like, it was, it was, Carla, it was, it was stunning. Yeah. It was yeah. stunning. Right. Yeah. The commission is, it's, first of all, it's, 60% lay leaders. So it is not just a bunch of pastors mm -hmm. sitting around talking to each other. It's pastors, it's deacons, it's synodically authorized ministers. Right. It's also lay leaders and administrators who've worked in our camps, who've worked in our social services, who've worked um, in communities and nonprofits that often partner with communities of faith. And it is every race, age, gender, sexual orientation, mm -hmm. financial and educational level, but all deeply, deeply dedicated. And that to me was a huge symbol of what does it mean to be aspirational mm -hmm. instead of um, emotionally remembering, right? This idea yes. of getting back to the glory days Mm -hmm. has not worked for us mm, ever that I can right. find evidence <laughs> yeah. of. Yeah. But the idea of, and this is the, the psychologist and the researcher in me speaking, that 
we make predictions based on analysis of data mm-hmm. and predictive trends. We develop hypotheses. We try to work out solutions that will support as many potential outcomes as possible. But the eye is not even on the now. It's certainly not on the five years ago. It's on the what are we looking at in five years? Mm-hmm. And how do we put the trainings, the supports, um, emotional, physical, financial, spiritual in place to get us to that point. We're always needing to be strategic planning for what comes next, what's ahead. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that we didn't say what is the exact demographic of the ELCA now? Because mm-hmm. we know that the demographic of the current okay. ELCA doesn't match necessarily the demographic of the country. It doesn't represent the demographic of the folks that we'd love to reach and be in partnership with and be in relationship with. It doesn't represent the graphics, the demographics of folks who may be specifically not in relationship with the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to really get the information and the voices at the table we need, we had to look ahead aspirationally. Where do we Mm -hmm. want to be? Who do we want to be Mm -hmm. in conversation, partnership, relationship, shared love and shared mission with in five years, in 10 years? That's Mm -hmm. who we need in the room now, along with the historians. And I love that approach. Mm -hmm. And I love when we can bring that approach into our congregations, right? Even if it's doing simple things like rewriting the building usage policy, mm-hmm. are we writing this with our church councils mm-hmm. or are we talking about the organizations that we wish were involved and partnered in our building and saying, what is it that you need to be a part of it? And so many of us are not, we are not right. focusing on not just what's outside of our building, but what might be outside of our building in five years? What might those needs be? Mm -hmm. Who are the folks who would know about that? Who are the community members that would know about what's coming and can help us get us the information Mm -hmm. that our 20-year-old degrees, our 10-year-old degrees, even our five-year-old degrees absolutely did not prepare us for? I know. Well, it's interesting. I when you were first talking about that um, with the commission, I was thinking about how the meteorologists uh, throw out those multicolored spaghetti models, you know, for, <laughs> for where the where the hurricane could maybe go. And maybe go. I think yeah. I think that's awesome because mm-hmm. I, I want to hear you say because our our time is ticking on, and I. Um, some folks might be listening to this to get to know you better. Um, they might also be listening because they want to understand more about what this commission is doing, uh, what its goals are and, you know, what it hopes. And, and you're supposed to be totally done by the 2025 churchwide assembly. Is that right? We surely are report ready and all because oh, the church doesn't have time to write. But mm-hmm. I think it is important yeah, to true. remember that the synod, um, I'm sorry, not the synod assembly, the churchwide assembly mm-hmm. passed this resolution for the commission for a reformed Lutheran church based on the model that brought the ELCA into reality, the right. commission for a new Lutheran church. Um, And that this commission for reformed Lutheran church would look at the constitution, 
with particular attention to articles four and five, um, really looking at the functionality of our three expressions of church, mm -hmm. church-wide, synod, and congregation, mm -hmm. and say, do those things serve us? How are they working together in collaboration and cooperation? And what do we need in terms of a useful, effective, responsive, adaptive system yeah. that will help us be not just the relevant church body for 2023, but will help position us to be a relevant, responsive community of faith for several more years and you know for those times to come and that's looking at being supportive and relevant relatable and real not just for the folks in the pews but also the people that have not been reached the folks that right. as an evangelistic model would include naturally the mm -hmm. folks who have nothing to do with church and who maybe don't want to how are we providing accompaniment and support there, regardless of where those folks are at? How are we caring for rostered leaders and administrators? We're having lots of conversations with the quote unquote fourth expression of church. But let's talk to, you know, Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service. Let's talk to mm -hmm. Reconciling Works. Let's talk to Lutheran Outdoor Ministries. Some of our best innovation and the great adventures of evangelical, missional, thriving ministry are not happening just in these three expressions of church. Mm -hmm. So how is that conversation, including voice and vote and real input and, and buy-in co for cooperative visioning and dreaming? And so our goal with this commission is to start by appropriate education, because not only are Very we good. to make recommendations for what a potential reconstitution committee might want to write. So that's an important distinction. We are not rewriting the constitution. Mm -hmm. We will make a recommendation if we think there is sufficient need that a reconstitution committee should be convened. And if so, what might the things they need to look at be. And then that mm. reconstituting committee would be formed and would do the actual writing work for us. We are the recommendations and okay. evaluations committee. So we are starting by learning about the history of the predecessor bodies and the formation of the ELCA, mm -hmm. doing deep study of the commission for a new Lutheran church, as well as looking at the basics of what does it mean to be a Lutheran? What did mm -hmm. it mean? What does it mean to people today? What actually unites us and where are the places that there is a deep divide or a lack of effective dialogue around? And we also have in that same resolution that was passed, a call to do this work through an anti-racist lens, recognizing that the ELCA and that the Lutheran church as it first began in America was also a cultural institution. Right. But the culture of the United States where we currently practice has deeply changed. We really need to look at what of the Lutheran policies, procedures, constitution, methods of organization were informed to be relevant to a Swedish German um, culture from a certain era and what resonates, what is timeless and what is time sensitive. 
Mm-hmm. And so we're really doing a lot of that work, engaging um, the professionals in the justice offices from the different ethnic ministry desks and several of the, the professionals that do work in the sacred and secular worlds are on the commission. We have several people that right. do pr- professional training work on the commission. And so we're also doing that work, um, learning about what it means to use an anti-racist lens, not just mm-hmm. don't be racist, be polite <laughs> to each other in meetings, but what does it mean <laughs> to do decolonizing right. real transformational work that promotes equity and belonging for people of all the different ethnicities and cultures that exist in America in potential mission fields for the ELCA. And so after we do that education, we'll be engaging in listening sessions with as many demographics as folks can send us and tell us we need to be listening with and to. And then after these listening sessions, we'll be coming together so that we can gather around what did we learn? What are the summaries of our learning? What's working? What's not working? What's really important to people? What's adiaphora, as the good Lutherans like to say, or that which is all extra window dressing and frosting, Mm -hmm. and then put together the recommendations to take to the churchwide assembly in 2025, saying this is what we believe is the most faithful uplifting of what needs to change if we're going to be a continued missional Mm -hmm. body of faith for the America of today and for our partnership in global ministry with the Lutheran World Federation. So that's really the scope of the work that we're doing. And that's why there's such an intentionally diverse group of individuals Mm -hmm. who are doing the work. And there's a website um, on the ELCA uh, main website we have a page and coming soon will be actually a Facebook page as well okay. and an Instagram so that folks who prefer other media platforms can say I'd like to be on the mailing list and just get an email I want to mm-hmm. integrate with you on different forms of social media because that's where I'm at because that's what you do you go where mm-hmm. people are mm-hmm. and not everybody right. is looking at the elca.org website Mm -hmm. to find out what's happening with the CRLC or Commission for Renewed Lutheran Church. Yeah. And, you know, Carl, it just feels like we're, as you know, um, just such a tender, vulnerable time, you know, because there's a lot of folks in the church that are depressed because they can't figure out, you know, they can't answer the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do anymore? Because none of the old stuff that used to work so well works anymore. So that's sort of one thing. And then there are the folks, at least I experience them in congregations over and over. Um, their singular goal is getting more people in the church and getting more people in our congregation. Why? Because we love them? Not necessarily. We want them in the church so that they will bring all the money that they have. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I just hear is it's so hard to fight that and to keep trying to educate about it and, and change it. I mean, I think I I can see in the place where I am now that it's kind of breaking apart. They're starting to get it. Um, But still, when you look at, you know, like the, the congregation where I'm serving as interim now, um, 
uh, finally has a lower mortgage than they used to, um, but it's still like $880,000. And we now have, um, due to all kinds of trauma drama that happened here and there in the last five years, um, you know, we're glad when 65 people come on a Sunday morning. So, you know, it's just when those kinds of numbers just feel like concrete block that's sitting on your chest, um, I, I think it keeps people from dreaming, being aspirational. Um, and I just, I don't know, to me, that just feels like the thing that I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to take a, a hammer and a chisel to that concrete block. <laughs> And just chipping, chipping, chipping away, preaching, you know, teaching, Bible studying, you know, pastoral care, my way through it. Um, but it's, it's, as you know, it's just really, really tough. And so you can say what sounds like, you know, to them, all this wonderful stuff. And they're like, yeah, but that's not going to pay our mortgage. Well, they have yeah. to think beyond that, you know. Our, our insurance company wouldn't like that. Oh, they so love that one. We really can't. This damn insurance companies. Insurance companies, man. <laughs> They're just stopping mission right and left, apparently. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, like I, I was in a um a, a interview with another church here recently, and one of the questions the call committee had for me, which I had never been asked before, which I thought was interesting, was what are some of the theological issues today? that you feel are the most important to address. And I was like, first of all, how much time do you have? Because there's a <laughs> lot there's a lot of things we could talk about. But I I said to him I said the my biggest issue and this is, you know, it's theological, it's it's whatever, but I said um I was like one of my biggest concerns is that the church is straying away from the original message of Jesus. We we see and we focus all the time in our in our meetings and our conversations of how do we get butts in the pews and dollars in our account because that's where people feel comfortable if their church is full on sunday and and the bank account is padded then they think it's a successful ministry mm -hmm. i said but that's that's only true from the institutional business perspective of our church what what I would like to see, you know, the modern churches doing is focusing on um, that, you know, focusing our mission and our and our and our goals and our hopes and our dreams on um, what would Jesus want us to be doing in in our communities and how can we how can we focus on that? And um, it was just amazing to me, kind of the reactions I got. I mean, I said a lot more, probably a lot more, you know more organized thought, but, um, they were all just kind of like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like that would be cool. <laughs> like, you know, kind of like putting Christ back in Christian kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was just kind of like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you can separate church and state, but church and culture is a whole different, whole different ball of wax. And so it's just interesting how, um, people see what a successful church is is so many can have so many different definitions. Mm -hmm. I think maybe putting some stories out there, Pastor Carla, as you were talking about the the, and I don't know what your educational element might look like, 
But I think, you know, just hearing more and more stories about congregations that um, were in this transformation and part of the transformation maybe is that their their facilities were bigger than their people or their programming or their ministry and hearing how um, hearing some success stories of how um, they made some different choice, you know, some congregations that made some different choices maybe are using their building differently. That's what we're trying to do at the place where I am now. Um, and we just did pass a facilities use policy <laughs> um, to try to, to try to bring more people. Um, uh, and we've got everything now from pickleball to like six AA groups to, yeah, just everything. And you know what we discovered, we've got a, a huge, a modern sanctuary that seats 600 people for our 60 that come. Right. <laughs> but it's only been six years ago that they had like 400 and something people. So a lot has happened, but we discovered for instance, and we're in a very um, large suburb of Columbia, South Carolina. We are the only congregation, not just Lutheran, the only congregation in the town of Lexington that will allow non-member weddings. Oh, you know, wow. That was a fun thing to learn. Yeah. And what a great opportunity for community <laughs> connection and mission. Exactly. And they're all about it. A wedding venue, mm -hmm. an event venue. Yep. yep. We have a little park in the back, actually, that's very, very nice that we could rent out for kids' birthday parties. And, you know, if we played our cards right, we could raise our $10,000 a month mortgage um, on those uh, on those fees. Now it costs us to do other things too, like who's going to manage that and who's going to clean up after and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, or you know, thinking about how Lutheran Social Services maybe would be interested in building something for their refugee services, um, maybe building a third floor on what we already have, um, so that they already have the land and they've already got the basic structure and. Yeah, but you know, it's it's even more than thinking outside the box these days. It's just it's very I've been doing a lot of teaching on the book of Acts, especially through Acts 15, and I call it holy innovation, the spirit superpower. <laughs> I love that. And Acts is amazing. Yeah. One of the things that has been very helpful for me mm -hmm. as a member of the commission and as an assistant to the bishop, is that I am still a congregational pastor. Okay. I had the option to not be, but instead I take five hours from one job, one synod, five hours from another synod, add a few extras on, and I serve a part, very part-time on a ministerial team at a congregation that I am at most Sundays. That's so great. As I am talking to leaders who are navigating this, I can say, oh yeah, well, at my council meeting last week, ooh, mm -hmm. let's talk about how we each worked through it and what worked and didn't work and let's support each other. And I feel like that has been just for me a really important part of my ministry because that is where oh totally a lot of the beautiful stories come from and that's where my optimism came from the reason I'm able to do this work and still have the creativity and the vision and the energy is because I have hope 
I have optimism and I am by Mm -hmm. no means, you know, Miss Perky of the ELCA. I'm just observant. And as a pastor who has worked with congregations that are actively redeveloping or transitioning or going into new ministry, I can say, friends, during the pandemic, we had no ability to gather inside, but we had an amazing outdoor space. And it turns out building a prayer walk, laying a labyrinth, mm-hmm. a covered area, having a Christmas Eve service with brand new fire pits and roasting marshmallows after communion can do, know, I've done it. Can do a <laughs> lot to get the community together. So we have now at the congregation I served during the pandemic, a indigenous wildflower butterfly garden that is an educational resource for multiple creation care nonprofits that Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts come and participate with. We have bluebird boxes that are built by our local scout troops. And we had a way to stay engaged as a congregation, but also a way to partner with the community. There is in that recalibrating, holy innovation, superpower Jesus, always a path forward. It's Mm -hmm. just a matter of having that strategic plan that comes from knowing your core values, knowing what you're really about, knowing why you're there and what your community is for, and then regularly reevaluating that. It's not who are we called to be, period. It's who are we called to be as Lutherans, Mm -hmm. as followers of Jesus, and who are we called to be now in this Mm -hmm. time, in this community, recognizing that calls can change just like they can in rostered leadership. Exactly. You know, one of the, this past Sunday, Um, It is, as we're filming, you know, we're in September, which is the season of creation, Mm -hmm. um, where a lot of ecumenical partners are celebrating creation. And their key phrase is, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream, Amos uh, 524. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I read the passage that comes from in service this past Sunday, and it is from Amos 5, 21 through 25. And it starts with God being like, I hate and despise your festivals. I'm not here for your assemblies and your fancy offerings of your fatted animals that clearly come from your most privileged people. And all of these things that are based on participation in a faith community is only those with sign on the line membership and wealth enough to put on your good clothes and to show up in your beautiful buildings with your fancy harps. Are you doing the work of justice? Mm -hmm. And what is the book of Acts? It's the story of 12 unhoused guys. I mean, if it was 2023, (laughs) they'd have been living in one of the renovated school buses. They'd be schoolies. They would. Going from town to town, just a Mm -hmm. small group of people who started a movement. So Mm -hmm. how can you not be excited reading what 12 guys with minimal money, collective purse, sharing Mm -hmm. their resource by vocational, right? Wherever they went, Mm -hmm. they worked for their food and housing. 
as well as teaching and preaching, but mostly building relationship in communities and finding people with different strengths and resource to partner with, mm -hmm. that's the ancient roots. It's not the 50s we need to, well, it's not the 2050s, mm -hmm. the 1950s, the 1850s we need to return to. It's the original the, 50s. The zero, zero 50s. Yeah, right, exactly. We need to be <laughs> well, and, and the fact that they were, um, this is a part that I focus on so much, they were constantly being jerked around by the spirit, you know, who was taking them from one place to the other, showing them that Gentiles could be a part of the group too, which, you know, like I said, was something that their Sunday school teacher always told them was not a thing. Mm -hmm. And grandmama would be rolling over in her grave if she knew that I baptized this person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, that was a big, you know, it's not a big deal to us today. We got our own big deals, but sure. you know, it's just a different time. Well, is there anything um, that you would want our listeners to know as sort of a last thing about um, about the commission or about ministry? You've been so inspirational um, to us today, and we thank you for that. Yeah. Aww. This has been amazing. And the reason why I really wanted to get to meet you both and get to know you both better is because this kind of conversation is what we need to be having for the church to be the inclusive community that Christ called it to be. We need to be having dialogue across generations. We need to be recognizing and lifting up that there are many skills, many gifts, mm -hmm. and that's what makes us the body of Christ. Digital ministry isn't any less real or relevant than in-person ministry, but also in-person ministry is still special. And there are interesting and creative ways we can do that, even with a global community, even with a national community. We need the wisdom from our extroverts and our introverts, our political activists and our kind caretakers. We need the service of food and clothes and donations and prayer. Prayer is real and it works. And some days, just saying, God, help us, or God, thank you. If that's all that we can get out, we are actively supporting the work of the church. And I truly believe that this idea of centering ourselves in justice, unrestricted, moving like water, ever flowing mm -hmm. streams, those don't stay still. Right. What is the need of justice? in this month is not the same as what the pressing justice needs were last month and the month before. And there's not just one of them. There's lots of rocks in this water. There's lots of streams flowing to this mighty river yep. that is justice. <laughs> and so there's so many ways to get involved. I really hope that as we start our listening sessions in November and December, um, even some in October, that folks will find a way to engage and share, not just what they're like, oh, I hate that, that didn't work. Right. But also where are those success stories? Who do we need to be spending time with to see great examples of where excellent leadership is happening, excellent innovation is happening, excellent mission and ministry is happening. Help us 
inspire others by lifting those stories up. Leaders from every ethnicity, race, generation, non-rostered leaders, congregations working collectively in community. Let us see the sense of hope in how God is still working so we can find ways to make sure that's institutionally supported and that that grows. And then also, what is the spirituality that is helping nurture you in that time? As you mentioned, Doc, earlier, the idea of programs saving mm -hmm. us is another part from the historical church that at one time was deeply effective, but in a time when everything changes so quickly, what program is relevant is not mm -hmm. necessarily going to remain something that needs to become an annual tradition for 27 years. Right. We tried a lot of that in the ELCA and I don't think any of it really worked. No, it is about what are you spiritually doing to practice discernment? How are you using your research, signs mm -hmm. and symbols? Who are you listening to that's helping inform how you find where the spirit is calling you today, in this moment, in this season? And we would love to know where that inspiration and that discernment and those spiritual practices are mm -hmm. rising up in the church. And I would ask that people pray for us, that people pray for our church, not just for its preservation, mm -hmm. but for the vibrant, vital, ever-expanding, ever-inclusive kingdom of God. Whatever the Holy Spirit moving in this world looks like, pray for that that gotcha. God lead and guide us where we need to be and bring purpose to every person of faith that we might find that path made just for us that helps us make a difference in the lives of others as we show love to God. Yeah. Well, Pastor Carla Christopher, Ooh. thank you so, so much Man. for being with us and, um, yeah, it's something I, I'll be listening to this podcast again. Yeah, <laughs> you know? definitely. So, um, yeah, we appreciate you giving your time to us and also yeah. giving your time to the whole ELCA, um, as well as your um, uh, the synods that you serve. Please tell um, Bishop Dunlap that um, Mary from uh, O'Hare Airport uh who was re who was hello. re who was recharging her hearing aids next to him and, and then hello. so yeah so we see each other there and then we get to uh phoenix for the mm -hmm. the event and he comes up to me and stares at me and i like the guy from the airport <laughs> And so then I figure out who he was. And then in both of the workshops that I go to, he's there too. And yeah. I said, Jim Dunlap, the spirit is putting us together for some reason. And we need to figure out what it is. Oh, <laughs> the spirit gosh. shows up. The spirit shows up. She oh. does. My Thank goodness. you all for this time. This has been a whole joy for my spirit. Oh, I'm oh, so good. glad. We're so and glad. It, 
And if we can help you guys in any way, please let us know. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, definitely. I will be reaching out to both of you as soon as we're finishing Mm -hmm. our process um, for the, how we'll do the listening sessions. Like what are the questions we need so that we can ask everybody the same ones Mm -hmm. to make sure the data is comparable. And, um, I would really love to talk to you as part of a focus group because we actually, one of the groups that we said we really need to talk to are ELCA influencers Mm. because those are folks that have connections on, that is you, (laughs) you are officially ELCA influencers because there are, you know, the people that have podcasts and Mm -hmm. that have huge social media presences that are some of the speakers or the authors of more popular Mm -hmm. books um, have a context that is broader, right? Mm -hmm. Than just one geographical area, one Mm -hmm. type of church, one size of church. So, and we also have um, a special focus group that we said we needed to get together of folks that had experience and memory of the commission for the new Lutheran church. So I'm sorry for a new Lutheran church. So, um, I would really love to have the chance to reach out to you. So I've got your emails now. So I promise right. I will be contacting you, but I can't wait to to hear this and share this. And you know, yeah, this is, to be great. This is super awesome. cool. What y'all are yeah, doing. fabulous. So yeah, well, we'll let so we'll much. let you sign off. Um, we'll keep uh, Lisa and I will gotcha. keep talking, but you enjoy <laughs> the rest of your day. And yeah. thanks to your thanks to your household too for sharing you on this holiday. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it very much. <laughs> right? They they took the dog. My my partner took the dog out. She was Bishop Winifred Mandela Christopher is That's my great right. Pyrenees. <laughs> Winnie, I know when you said that, uh, those things in Phoenix, you said that, and and my little, like, you know, South Africa memories just came flooding back. And I was like, oh, good old Winnie Mandela, man. She was, she was, (laughs) um, when she was a puppy, was during the, when I was really involved with community, um, organizing around the black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. and so she was coming with me because i couldn't leave her at home because she would pee on the floor because she was training so (laughs) i ended up being the woman who showed up at all these big marches and rallies with like a fluffy puppy And, (laughs) and so there was um who was it the, oh, the Boston Globe was doing a story on activism in Pennsylvania around the election, mm-hmm. the Trump election, mm-hmm. because Pennsylvania mm-hmm. is one of those vote turning states and right. predictors. Yeah. And so they did an interview with me and he's like, well, where's a good neutral place to meet you? And so we met at the dog park. And so, <laughs> you know, this picture of me in the Boston Globe. And the first thing that he mentions is that we met at a dog park with my dog, Winifred Mandela. <laughs> and so awesome. that was, it. she has it. kind of become an icon. Also during oh. the pandemic, when I was filming, I would take her to church and she figured mm-hmm. out how to open the door to the sacristy. So yep. I didn't know this was happening until my parishioner started sending me screenshots from watching the YouTube <laughs> and the dog is oh in the back like, jumping up and down so they loved it and thankfully thought it was funny thankfully um, but yeah she's she's a a, a local ELCA rock star wow. but she's nice. awesome during recorded 
uh, events. Yeah. So. My dog, my dog was used in many a pandemic video. Um, <laughs> the, the kids are still like, "Why don't you bring Iggy to church anymore?" And I'm just like, "Cause she would knock down a lot of people now." So she, yeah, she stays home. <laughs> yeah, my my Great Pyrenees went from you know the little fluffy armful to like. 80 pounds of on her hind legs taller than me so right. I'm like mm, she'll, she shows up for St. Francis Day still but yep. that's that's about that's it right. that's about it yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, well, I love thank it. you both. I'm thank you. Have a wonderful night. I'll talk you to you too. Later. Thanks you so too. much. All Bye. Right. Bye.